Thank you, Seth, very much. All good songs. I even remember singing that last one when I was a little boy. Jeremiah chapter 5, verses 30 and 31. Just two verses this morning, but very dense verses. This is what they say. An appalling and horrible thing has happened in the land. The prophets prophesy falsely, and the priests rule at their direction. My people love to have it so. But what will you do when the end comes? This is the word of God. You can be seated. And thank you, each one of you again, for coming to worship with us this morning at Christ Fellowship. Would you please bow with me before we go into the preaching of the word of God? Lord, I pray that you would please help me this morning. I need and I want, of course, to present this truth rightly, accurately, lovingly, and boldly, all at the same time, Lord, I want you to be glorified. I want you to speak through your word, and I want each soul in here to be touched by your Holy Spirit in one way or another. We all come in here with very different uh, backgrounds, even just very different mornings. Lord, some of us need to be encouraged. Some of us need to be pricked in conscience. Some of us need to be drawn to you for the first time ever and come to faith in Jesus Christ. And some of us simply need to be made more and more into the image of your dear son, Jesus Christ. And so, Father, I pray that you would do that wonderful and beautiful and amazing work that only your Holy Spirit can do and speak to each one of us individually through this one message preached to all of us at once. I love you, Lord, and I pray this in your son's perfect name. Amen. Well, when I first came to these verses, I knew just by looking at them, wow, these verses have a lot there. They have a lot there. I can just make these, just these two verses, a whole sermon. And then as I was looking through them, I thought, I might have to split this up into two, actually. There's so much there. Then as I kept studying, I thought, no. I'm going to have to split this up into three sermons. (laughs) No joke. There's so much here. And it's glorious. We're going to be running, however, this morning, running through so much truth. There's just so much, but it's going to be like running through just fields of golden glory. It is so good, not because I'm preaching it, because of what it is, because of the content that it is, just the very word of God. The text, as you see upon the screen, I've laid it out that way. I've Divided up the portions in that way on purpose. Because you see that top line. Look at that top line. That top line, we have a statement. The statement is an appalling and horrible thing has happened in the land. Then we get three crimes. The three appalling and horrible things. Right up there, we get them one after another. What are they? Prophets prophesy falsely. Priests rule their own direction. My people love it. Those are all three of the crimes, the three horrible and appalling things. Then we end with a question. So statement, three crimes, question. What will you do when the end comes? That's the way it's laid out. That's the way that we're going to walk through it. This is the way that God has inspired it to be. And so we're going to leave it untouched and walk through it just like that. Statement, 
three crimes and questions. First crime is this one, though, which I titled the message, the crime of the false prophets. The crime of the false prophets. You know why I chose that picture? Because false prophets are described as wolves in sheep's clothing. Are they not? I didn't make that picture, by the way. Thank, I don't think, I hope it's not copyrighted because I just yanked it right off the internet. I thought, boy, that's a good one. I'm going to use that, throw a little text on it, put some blurry background. Voila. <laughs> so let's just walk through this text. Statement and first crime. That's where we're going to go this morning. The statement and the first crime. So the statement. An appalling and horrible thing has happened in the land. The Hebrew word for appalling there is also translated and understood elsewhere in the Bible as this word desolation or desolations. When we see that exact Hebrew word, by the way, if you're not familiar, if you're like, why is he bringing up Hebrew? If you're not familiar, the Old Testament was written largely in Hebrew, New Testament written largely, well, written fully in Greek. So that's why I'm bringing up the Hebrew, just in case you didn't know. We're all at different places in our walk, and I get that. The Hebrew word for this word appalling is usually translated desolation or desolations. Usually, like, for example, Second Chronicles chapter 30, verse 7. Look at this. Do not be like your fathers and your brothers who were faithless to the Lord their God, the God of their fathers, so that he made them a desolation, as you see. That's the same Greek word for appalling. Right there. It carries the idea of destruction and ruin. It shows the level of destruction. It's an appalling, ruinous, and horrible thing that's happened. Then, let's move on because not only does he tell us how horrible it is, what it makes it even worse is this next part. He tells us where it took place. You see that in the text? An appalling, ruinous, horrible thing has happened. And then he says, where? Where did it happen? In the land. Now, you might read over that very quickly, but that's very important. Because where it took place makes it an even worse crime. Why? Which land is he talking about? First of all, he's talking about the, the God, the land that God promised to Abraham and his descendants forever. We call it the promised land, don't we? That's just the name that we've put to it. If you try to do a search for that word promised land in your Bible, you won't actually ever find it say promised land. It just says land that was promised, but we've coined it as the promised land. Genesis chapter 12, verses 6 and 7. Abram passed through the land to the place of Shechem, to the oak of Moreh. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abraham and said, to your offspring, I will give this land. God said, Abram, to your offspring, I will give this land. It was the land of promise, and it says he built an altar to the Lord there. That's the first time we hear about him saying, this land is going to come to you and your followers. Deuteronomy 6, that was the first book of the law. Genesis, now. Deuteronomy 6, the last book of the law. Chapter 6, verse 3, here Therefore, O Israel, be careful to do them. That's God's commands, God's statutes, God's rules, God's testimonies, that it may go well with you. And you may multiply greatly as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you 
in a land flowing with milk and honey. I remember reading the books of Laura Ingalls Wilder. Maybe you've heard of those in the past. That's where we get the great TV shows, um, Little House on the Prairie. Remember that? Remember Laura Ingalls Wilder? This comes out in the books, but not in the shows. I don't think it ever comes up in the shows. But she said when she heard her parents reading the Bible and talking about promised land called the land of milk and honey as a little girl, she said, that must have been really messy to walk around in the land of milk and honey. Just milk and honey everywhere. Just, you must have gotten so dirty. And of course, those are word pictures on purpose. Word pictures for the blessing that is in that land. Milk. It is rich and creamy and delicious and very good for you. And when you have extra, it can be sold for profit, for gain. So that's why that metaphor was used. Then also honey. It's uncommon. And it's such a treat. And even it can be sold. And so this metaphor, these word pictures, this land was a gift of God to Abraham and his descendants, the Jews. This was to be a land known for God's blessings, flowing with milk and honey. Flowing with God's blessings. But why? Why was it a land flowing with God's blessings? Why was it going to be that way? Because the people, through obedience to God's commands, would be made into an image, into a picture of what it was like in the beginning with Adam and the Lord in the garden. You see, the promised land was supposed to be an imperfect picture because the curse had already become, come to the world because of sin, but a picture nonetheless of God with his people in fellowship and in blessing like it was in the garden in the beginning. The Garden of Eden was a blessed place where Adam was in perfect fellowship with God and in a perfect state of blessing. Why? Because sin had not come into the world yet. And so... As the people of Israel lived as God's people, believing God's words and following God's ways, they would live in something that was almost a picture of this blessed, glorious garden that mankind marred. So where this is happening, where this is happening in the land is also shocking and awful since it's supposed to be a blessed place. It's supposed to be a place where God can pour out his blessings on his people because they're walking in obedience, out of love to their God. However, it's not that way. The people are only bringing curses upon it. It's supposed to be a land of blessing. The people are bringing curses upon it. Just as a parent can't lovingly bless his children who are walking in blatant, brazen-faced disobedience to their parents. They're not going to experience the blessings of mom and dad when the child is spitting in the face of the parent with his or her sins. It's not going to be joyous and warm and close, full of fellowship and delight. It can't be. 
And it's the fault of the disobedient child. And this is the fault of the disobedient children of Israel. The people are only bringing curses upon the land. An appalling and horrible thing has happened in the land. Tell us, Lord. Tell us what it is. Number one, the prophets prophesy falsely. The Hebrew word for prophet literally means a spokesman or a speaker. That's what it means. This man, his primary tool was his mouth. He's a spokesman and a speaker. That's what he did. That was his job. That was his role. That was his gift from God to be a spokesman or a speaker, to use his mouth for the glory of God. Listen to this. The first time we see that word prophet, very first time ever in the whole Bible, we see that word prophet is in the first book of the Bible, Genesis. You probably didn't expect that. Because we think, no, 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 prophets came later. After Israel got really bad, after David, and there was the split in the kingdom, and then all the kings started worshiping the Baals, the idols. I thought that's when the prophets came about. Listen to this. The first occurrence is in Genesis chapter 20, verse 7. It's in the text where God speaks to a king, king named Abimelech. This king was under God's curse at that time. And God says to him that Abraham, he says this, Abraham is his prophet. He says, Abraham's my prophet. And if Abraham will pray for Abimelech, then Abimelech will live and not die. The second occurrence that this word ever comes up, this word prophet, it's used here, prophets prophesy falsely, same word comes up in the second book of the Bible. Exodus chapter 7, verses 1 and 2. Exodus 7, 1 and 2. I've got it back here behind me. Lord said to Moses, See, I've made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all the command I give you, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of this land. So from the very beginning, guys, from the very beginning, first two times we even see these words come up, whether it was praying for what God commanded in the case of Abraham or saying what God commanded in the case of Aaron. The prophet was a mouthpiece of God. That was his role. That was his one task. We sometimes like to look at these memes online where people mess up. It says, you had one job. Remember that? And it shows that they messed up horribly. His one role was to speak the word of God. His one role was to say what God said. That's the, that's the role of the prophet. So when we read the prophets prophesy falsely, this is a sickening and a wretched crime. To make up a message on your lips, speaking as a prophet, but pretending and lying that you're speaking on behalf of the Lord Almighty, to pretend that you're speaking on behalf of the Lord Almighty while just peddling a message that's either out of your own motives, 
or out of your own imagination. It's a hideous and it's an awful and it's a dreadful, shameful thing. They prophesy deceptively. They prophesy wrongly. The same word that's used there for falsely is also used in Psalm 63, 11. Look at this, Psalm 63, 11. But the king, this is David, but the king will rejoice in God. Everyone who swears by him will glory. For the mouths of those who speak lies will be stopped. He's saying everyone who swears by the name of the Lord, who, who puts their hope in him, they're going to glory. But the mouths of those who speak lies will be stopped. That same word, lies, is the same word that was used for falsely. You know what that tells us? It tells us that it's not as though the prophets were just slightly wrong. They just got it slightly wrong. Or they were just a little bit incorrect. That's all. It's just slightly inaccurate. No. You know what it tells us? They were liars. These men were bold-faced liars speaking on behalf of God himself. That is appalling. That is horrible. That is ruinous. So don't think it's a, a new thing that it's happening in our day. Because we know it's happening in our day. <laughs> just, just turn on the TV if you have cable. Or just pull it up on YouTube. Just type in anything like Bible preacher. Half of them aren't that good. And it's not as though I'm saying, and I am, I'm good. And see, see, them, me. See the difference there? I'm not saying I'm better than them. I'm saying this is better than all of us. And your words have to match what's in here or they're false, period. It's very easy to spot a false prophet. Is, does what he's, is what he's saying from this book or not? Do your homework and you'll find it very easily. I remember when I first got saved and actually wanted to read this book, I actually cared about this book. Prior to my salvation, this book was just so odd. It was just strange. I didn't, it was like, it was like it had a question mark on the outside, and I was just like, I don't, I don't get it, nor do I really care that much. I don't care. I don't care. I care about me. I don't care about that. When I got saved, everything changed. All I wanted to do was sit in my room and read this book. The more I read it, the more it reprogrammed me. And the more I read it, the more I realized, wow, that's, if that's the truth, then this can't be right. And if that's true, then this can't be right. And it was so very simple because I actually cared about learning it. And it's just laid out so clearly. And so that's what I'm saying. Compare what anyone who's holding this book, pretending to be preaching from it, Compare what he or she says and find out what's really true. They even did that with the Apostle Paul. It says the Bereans were counted more worthy. Why? Because they searched the Scriptures daily to see if what Paul said was true. More worthy. So hold me to that standard. Hold everyone who holds this book and speaks from it to that standard. Please. So they were liars, people who are supposed to be the mouthpiece of 
God, who calls himself the truth, are instead using the instrument of their mouth for doing the work of the devil, who's called the father of lies. They're supposed to be the mouthpiece for the truth. Instead, they were speaking as if they were the devil, who's a liar. They were speaking lies. They were more closely represented the father, the wicked one, that father, of whom Jesus looked at the Jews one day, one day and said, who, they said, we have Abraham as our father. And he said, you're children of your father, the devil. Jesus said that. He looked at Jews who knew a ton of the Old Testament and said, you are children of your father, the devil. He was a murderer from the beginning and has never been on the side of truth, Jesus said. And these were representing their father, the devil. Christian, God has given each one of you a spiritual gift. If you're in the faith, God's given each one of you a spiritual gift that's supposed to be used in his service for the building up of the kingdom. You feel most fulfilled when you're using it. And you help with kingdom work and kingdom growth when you're exercising it. And you please God when, in his strength and for his glory, you walk in obedience to his word and live a life that's selflessly pointing to him and showing everyone that he's great and he's glorious and he's good and he's mighty. The dear son, Jesus Christ, you're pointing to him with that gift. This is what you were made for and this is where you'll find your most joy and your most fulfillment and your most purpose when you fit in to exactly what God made you for. Amen? Yes? So, when all that gets perverted by sin and turned on its head because of selfish gain, then you get the opposite. All the opposite of those things comes true. You become less fulfilled and more depressed, constantly looking for something to make you feel happy. Always just searching something else. Buy something else. Find something else. Drink something else. Take something else. Find someone else. You tear down kingdom work through a witness that's only hypocritical through the onlooking world. And your actions are odious to God because you've exchanged his glory for a lie that you've believed because you've stopped obeying the scriptures and started believing the lies of the devil just like Adam and Eve did in the garden. The prophets prophesy lies, it says. The prophets prophesy lies. We get more about this. Turn to Jeremiah 23 now. If you don't have your Bible with you, it's going to be on the screen behind me as well. Jeremiah 23. We get a lot more about this exact topic because this gets focused on, laser focused on, later in the book right here. Look at this. Jeremiah 23, verses 9 through 4. This is so good. This is so good. Concerning the prophets, my heart's broken within me. All my bones shake. I'm like a drunken man, like a man overcome by wine because of the Lord and because of his holy words. He says, his words have gripped me. His words have changed me. And because his words have changed me and I see them as the absolute standard of truth, this is why I'm bothered. Verse 10, for the land is full of adulterers. Because of the curse, the land mourns and the pastures of the wilderness are dried up. Their course is evil and their might is not right. Both prophets and priests are ungodly. Even in my house, I found their evil. What's he mean? That's the Lord talking about even in my own house. What's his house? The temple. He's saying, even in my own temple, the temple of God, I found their evil, declares the Lord. Therefore, their way shall be to them like slippery paths 
in the darkness. What's that mean? They're going to fall. It's hard to walk in the dark anyway when the path is somewhat straight. Add to that a slippery path. They're going to fall. Their doom is sure. It's coming. It's just a moment in time that it's going to happen. Like slippery paths in the darkness into which they shall be driven and fall. For I will bring disaster upon them in the year of their punishment, declares the Lord. In the prophets of Samaria, I saw an unsavory thing. Now he's talking about the northern kingdom. That was the capital of the northern kingdom, Samaria. Remember, they were more wicked. They got carried off first before the people of Judah. They got carried off by the Assyrians in the year 722 B.C. They were more wicked, so they got carried off sooner. And so he's referring to them now. In the prophets of Samaria, I saw an unsavory thing. Tell us, God, what was it? They prophesied by Baal. They prophesied by a false god. They said, by the words of Baal. They're not even saying, by the words of the Lord. They prophesied by Baal and led many people astray. But, look at verse 14. But in the prophets of Jerusalem, I have seen a horrible thing. There's our word, horrible. They commit adultery and walk in lies. They strengthen the hands of evildoers so that no one turns from his evil. All of them have become like Sodom to me, all its inhabitants like Gomorrah. So he's saying, these prophets are actually leading my people into open sin and celebrating it, saying, that's good. What did Jesus say about that? Woe to those who call good evil and evil good. You know what a woe is? It's not what you say to a horse when you want it to stop. A woe is the opposite of a blessing. It's a curse. Jesus said, cursed be the ones that call evil good. And good, evil. Which totally applies to our day. This book, almost everything in this book, I would say actually everything in this book has principles that apply to our day so perfectly, so perfectly. That's one reason why I wanted to go through it with all of you. It's good for you. It's good for me. And he said, my people, people of Israel have become like Sodom to me, like Gomorrah. Remember them? Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts concerning the prophets, behold, I will feed them with bitter food and give them poisonous water to drink. For from the prophets of Jerusalem, ungodliness has gone out into the land. Thus says the Lord of hosts, do not listen to the words of the prophets who prophesy to you, filling you with vain hopes. They speak visions of their own minds. What I mentioned earlier, their own imaginations. Not from, the mouths of, not from the mouth of the Lord. They say continually to those who despise the word of the Lord, it shall be well with you. Oh, gosh. This really angers me when people standing in a position of authority of the Lord affirm people's wickedness. You know what Jesus said? about people who cause his little ones to fall into sin? Do you recall? It's better for them if they have a millstone tied around their neck and be drowned in the depths of the sea. That's the better of the two options. These wicked people, seeing the two options that are going to come to them in judgment, 
They say, you know, having a massive 500-pound stone tied around my neck and being drowned looks better. I think I'll go with that. That's how severe the punishment is for such a crime. And they say continually to those who despise the word of God, it'll be well with you. Everything's fine. You're good. Just the way you are. After all, you were born that way. You know, I was born wanting to lie and steal and deceive. And guess what? I was really good at it, unfortunately. It doesn't make it right, does it? And to everyone who stubbornly follows his own heart, they say, no disaster shall come upon you. For who among them has stood in the counsel of the Lord to see, to hear his word? Or who has paid attention to his word and listened? Behold, the storm of the Lord, wrath has gone forth, a whirling tempest. It will burst upon the head of the wicked. The anger of the Lord will not turn back until he has executed and accomplished the intents of his heart. Forget about what these false prophets have in, his, in their hearts. This is what's true about the Lord. He's a God of justice, and he will execute judgment. In the latter days, you will understand it clearly. I did not send the prophets, yet they run. He's saying, I didn't send them, yet they run on. I did not speak to them, yet they prophesied. They're running ahead, though I didn't send them. And they're speaking, though I didn't give them a word. But if they had stood in my council, if they had stood in my council, that's the second time he's mentioned that. If they had stood in my council, if they stood before me, then they would have proclaimed my words to my people. And they would not have turned them from their, and they would have turned them from their evil way and from the evil of their deeds. Do you see what he's saying? The goal, the primary thing that he wants his prophets to do, speak my words and turn the wicked from their ways. Speak my words and turn the wicked from their ways. So when a man comes, appointed by God, and he speaks God's words, and his goal is to turn you from their, your evil ways, guess what? That's what God wants for you. Because he's saying right here, that's what they should have done. That's what I wanted them to do. That's what I want for my people. I want them to hear my words, these precious, golden, wonderful words that are life-giving words. Jesus said about his words, their spirit and their life. I want, the, I want that for them. And guess what I want for them also? I want them to be turned away from their sin. Why? Because their sin is damning them, condemning them, ruining them. That's what sin does to all of us. That's what sin does to me, Cohen Ezel. It ruins me too. All of us, right? And so this is why this is so good, because he says, had they stood in my counsel, they would get it, but they haven't. So let's look at a prophet who stood in God's counsel and see what was true about him. Isaiah chapter 6, very familiar text. Okay, this actually came up in Wednesday night in our Bible study, just very briefly, but it came up. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne. So here's someone in the presence of God, in the presence of his council, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the fair seraphim, that's a type of angel. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, Holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. 
And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, wow, it's awesome to be here. This is amazing. This is so cool. Is that what it says he said? Wow, God, me and you are just like buds. What did he say? What did this prophet of God say? This holy man, he was a holy man. Woe is me. Remember that word woe we talked about earlier? He said, may a curse fall upon me. Why did this prophet call a curse upon himself? For I'm lost for, why are you lost, Isaiah? Tell us, for I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he took with tongs from the altar of God. He touched my mouth, the tool of the prophet, the thing that God uses in the prophet to do God's work, his mouth. Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt has been taken away. Your sin atoned for. Church, listen to me. When we see God for who he really is, we'll see ourselves for who we really are. When we see God for who he really is, we'll see ourselves for who we really are. Seeing God's holiness makes you see your own wickedness. Did you hear what I said? Seeing God's holiness makes you see your own wickedness. And makes you run to the cross. See, the heart of your problem is the problem of your heart. That's why it was so bad when these prophets were telling people to follow their own hearts. That's what it says right there in verse 17. It shall be well with you, they say, and everyone who stubbornly follows his own heart. You're not supposed to follow your own heart. Your heart's desperately wicked and deceitful above all things, according to the word of God. And so when you see your own heart, you see how wicked it is, and you run to the cross. So what we see here, what a real prophet does, when he sees God, he says, boy, am I sinful. I'm so unholy. I don't even deserve to be here. I'm I have unclean lips. I'm not, I shouldn't be a spokesman for you. And what's God do? God says, I'm going to fix your problem. I'm going to atone for your sins. You know, the Apostle John gives us some context on what happened here in Isaiah. You might not know this. And it's, for those of you who've never seen this, it's glorious. So amazing. The Apostle John gives us some commentary on what happened here with Isaiah. Turn to John 12. It's going to be behind me as well. John 12, verses 36 through 41. Look at this. This is really great. I remember the first time I saw this, I thought, are you kidding me? This is amazing. Wow, really? Jesus says this, while you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of the light. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them, though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. So that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah, the one we just saw, might be fulfilled. What words? Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe. For Isaiah said again, look at this, 
he has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Now look at this, verse 41. This is it. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Who's the his in the context here but Jesus Christ? Actually, if you're reading from the NIV, the New International Version this morning, the translators of that translation picked up on that, and they actually word it this way, because he saw Jesus' glory and spoke of him. The Apostle John said that Isaiah saw Jesus' glory. He's referring to Isaiah chapter 6. When Isaiah saw the glory of God, so I'm seated on a throne, John says, that was Jesus. Isn't that awesome? Isaiah saw the pre-incarnate Christ, the second person of the Trinity. And those who know Jesus, who've truly been born again by faith, seeing him for who he really is, they are therefore confronted by their own sin, just like Isaiah was. When Isaiah saw Jesus, what did he also see? I'm a sinner And I need you to forgive me. I need you to help me. I'm wicked. And God said, I will atone for your sins. See, we're all like these false prophets. We all follow our own hearts. We all look at sinful things and say, that's okay. That's all right. You know why I say it's all right? Because I like it. That's why I say it's all right. That's why I also create a God in my own mind who's okay with these things because it helps me sleep better at night. You see, if I believe in the God of the scriptures, then I'm in trouble, okay? I've got to be humble and I've got to submit to him and I don't like to do that. In fact, I don't like that word submit and I don't like that word authority either. There was an atheist once. When I was in Bible college, a professor of mine told me, hey, I'm going to be going to this university and I'm going to be on stage debating an atheist. And if you guys come to this, I'll give you bonus points. Well, he had me at, I'm going to be debating an atheist. He didn't have to give me bonus points. He could have taken points away for coming and I still would have come. I had to be there. I wanted to see it. And he did such a good job. He did such a good job at talking to this atheist. I especially remember one part where he said, the atheist said to my Bible professor, he said, so if what you're saying is right, then you're saying that my mother should be in hell, my own mother. And if you think that, well, I think you should go to hell. That's what he said to my professor. And my professor said, I should go to hell. (laughs) and everybody cracked up. And I thought, exactly. We're not saying we're better. We're saying, yes, I'm wicked, which is why I need Jesus. That's why I need him in the first place. We see our sin when we see Jesus. And we got to ask questions at the end from the audience. So I asked this atheist professor, I said, so you, you, you mentioned all these things during your talk. I said, what authority? What's your authority for thinking these things? You know what he said to me? I'll never forget. He said, I don't really like that word authority. And I thought in my head, I know you don't. That's why I asked. You are your own authority. That's what I was thinking in my head. 
you always think after you have conversations with people, oh, I should have said that, right? (laughs) And so when we see God, we also see ourselves. And when we see God too, you know what we also see? The glorious gospel. The glorious gospel of a Jesus who runs to us, who are false, who do follow our own wicked hearts. And if we come to him in faith, repentant, he's merciful to us. We'll find mercy in a merciful God when we ask for that mercy, when we come repentant. God is merciful, yes, but did you know this? He doesn't just give out his mercy. He doesn't just give it out to everybody. Not everyone receives God's mercy. Not everyone does. Who receives it? Those who know they need it, right? Those who know they need it. And come to him and say, I am so wicked. I've broken your laws. Please forgive me. I don't want to be false because you're the truth. And when we come to him, he uses us. We speak the truth to promote his glory. We don't speak lies to prosper self like the false prophets did. So don't fall into the crime of the false prophets, church. Don't fall into that crime. Let me end with this. Jesus cleanses sinners like he did to the lips of Isaiah. So he can then use them for his purposes, for your good and for his glory. Let me say that again. Jesus cleanses sinners like he did with the lips of Isaiah so that he can then use them, us, for his purposes, for your good, and for his glory. Father, we thank you for this truth. It is truly glorious. I pray that you would please keep us from the crime of the false prophets. And please, of course, help us to be able to see crimes of other false prophets in our day. Lord, we want to so hold on to the truth and be known as people of the truth that we abhor lies, any lies, especially those lies that we're believing or saying or thinking. So please keep us from that. Help us to be people of the truth so that we will mimic you, Lord Jesus, who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And we pray this in your perfect name. Amen. Thank you.